Welcome to Unmapped Travel Destinations, a series that uncovers all the untapped exotic remote destinations. Discover what it is like living literally at the edge of the world and learn what it's like to live as a local in the most unique destinations from the most traveled guy under 40, Dustin Fundheller. Also known as the Wandering Dentist. Wandering Dentist. The dentist that has been to every country in the world, even those you didn't know existed. It's said to be one of the most alien-looking places on Earth. It's not near really anything. It's an isolated island. It's controlled by Yemen, but it's 150 miles east of Somalia and 240 miles south of Yemen. And it's not that small considering its isolation. It's 80 miles by 31 miles. So it's a decent-sized island and with a population of about 60,000 people, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And that's what is so awesome about visiting it. I'm not a person that's huge into plants. I don't go around taking pictures of trees or flowers. Actually, I never, ever do. But when you go to Socotra, it's like you're entering a Dr. Seuss book. When I was a kid and saw the images of Dr. Seuss and the, the drawings that he would do, that's Socotra. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. It's crazy how these plants and, and animal not really the animals, but more the plants and how they, they don't even seem real. And that's why, again, it's called the most alien looking place on Earth. So let's talk about why I went to Socotra and what my interest in Socotra was. Well, as much as you probably want to think that it's because I love plant life and wanted to see the ex exotic place, no, I wasn't that clever. Basically, I wanted to visit every country in the world. And so I needed to visit Yemen and I went to the embassy in Malaysia because I was living in Singapore at the time and there's no embassy in Singapore. I went to the embassy in Indonesia. I went to the embassy in the UAE. And all three places told me that I had to be a part of the United Nations if I wanted to get in, which really frustrated me because I've done a lot of service work as an international dentist and doctor. And I'd gone to multiple countries and I thought for sure they'd let me in because they want, they need work, right? They're going through a crisis. And yet, no, even though they need, the country is in dire need of doctors, a doctor that wants to volunteer and go there, they're not even willing to work with or treat or do anything. Come on. It was, it was absolutely ridiculous. But regardless, I ended up finding out about Socotra because that was one place you could get a visa on arrival. So that was my next job was to get to Socotra where all they require is a visa on arrival. And that's why I decided to go there because then I could say I visited Yemen. So that was my problem now because I knew where I could go to Socotra, but it's so isolated and I knew if I got there, I would have a visa on arrival, everything would be good. The problem is all the flights were canceled because Yemen was in a crisis. And basically when I had contacted people about going to Socotra, they all told me that, hey, it's impossible right now because there's no flights. And 
you won't be able to go until the crisis is over. So I couldn't go to Maine, Yemen because there was a crisis and they wouldn't let me in. And I couldn't go to Socotra, which is also Yemen, but it's an isolated, safe place because there's no transportation. But if I could get there, I'd be fine. So all I had to do was figure out a way to get there. And so that's what became this crazy, crazy adventure. So basically, I just used common sense. I realized in today's world, we have to have connections. Every place, even the most isolated places in the world are still connected. And I figured there had to be boats going there, even if small boats, there had to be trade and things happening with them and the rest of the world. And so I started looking where, if there was a boat to go to Socotra, even though however rare it would be, where would it go for? And again, we talked about it was 150 miles from Somalia. So Somalia would be the closest. But if anybody has done research on Somalia, it's not, and we'll be doing an episode in the future about Somalia, it's not the most stable country right now. So for it to have a big port, probably not going to happen. And then also, when it's 150 miles from Somalia, where the area of Somalia it's from is just desert. It's not near any big capital city. No large city is 150 miles from Socotra. The capital is much further away towards the south. So then the next thing was Yemen, because it's a Yemen, it's a part of Yemen. But again, there was no large cities. And number two, Yemen was going through a crisis. So I figured it's not Yemen either. And then it looked at the map and saw Salala. And there it was. Because Salala is, I believe, the third biggest city in Oman, second, third biggest city in Oman. Not just that, it would be by far the largest city that is near Socotra. And it had a huge port because of its ideal location and because Oman is a very stable country. And I didn't know this at the time, but Captain Phillips, the movie Captain Phillips, they deport from Salala before he gets bombarded by the pirates and everything. So, yeah, it made total sense. Salala was going to be the place that would supply Socotra with all its supplies whenever it would need stuff. And so I contacted the port the Salala port and asked, do you have boats going to Socotra? And their response was, is this a serious question? And then I, and then obviously I explained my situation and everything. And they said, yes, we have boats, but they're very irregular, which would make perfect sense when I got there. And so I contacted every single tour group in, in Socotra who had told me I couldn't come yet and said, I am willing to take a boat. I don't care what's on this boat. I don't care if it's not fancy. I'm willing to take a boat. Just figure out when there's a boat. And so basically they started doing their looking. And, and again, there was probably like eight different groups and there was only one person that had a friend in Salala. And he contacted me with a friend in Salala and said, if you go to Salala Omen, he'll look every day with you for a boat and you'll be able to take a boat. And so that's exactly, we had to wait till the right season when it was the busiest season when we knew there would be boats. Now the busiest season means there's a boat once a week. That's the busy season. But there's seasons, there's a windy season when there's zero boats for one to two months. So I didn't want to go at that time. And I happened to arrive at 2 a.m. to the airport. And the guy picked me up from the airport. And I, I don't know if I just get lucky. He literally said, we have a boat leaving tomorrow. Which it was 2 a.m. which meant today. We have a boat leaving later today in the afternoon or, or not even in the afternoon in the morning 
And so basically I arrived at 2 a.m. By the time I get to my hotel, it's 3 a.m. I knew there was gonna be a boat. So I used the Wi-Fi to download different like eBooks, uh, Kindle books and different things for, cause the boat ride's gonna be a long boat ride and there's gonna be nothing to do on the boat. And I probably got like two hours of sleep and then he picked me up at 8 a.m. So as you can imagine, I got no sleep, but that's fine. We went to the ATM because I had to take out a lot of money because in Socotra, I knew there's probably no working ATMs. And then after that, we basically went down to the dock. And so we got to the dock about 9 a.m. And the boat was already getting, was very close to deporting at that time. But they knew I was coming and, and everything. And so, yeah, the boat, we left at 10 a.m. And this boat, <laughs> do not expect this boat to be this super fancy boat. This was an Indian boat. There was a crew of like six, six or seven. And it was no electricity on the boat, no high powered boat. And then this boat, even to make it worse, the boat was 90% cement. So the passengers just had a little area to go and that's all we had. But I was very, very happy I got on the boat. And the boat was so tiny and so old that we had to climb over two boats to get to this boat. This boat wasn't even docked on the dock. It was docked to other boats. And so we had to climb over, to, we had to go onto one boat and then go over the deck to the next boat to go over to this tiny little boat because I guess the tiny boats have last priority for docking. So again, we docked, we left at about 10 a.m. It would take, we would go the entire day the next day and the entire day the day after that. But then I'd be sleeping at about, I think believe it was 1 a.m. when a guy woke me up and it was my tour guide in Socotra. Or, and my guide who had, had organized everything for me. It was kind of cool because he was the same age as me or right there around. And also let's talk about this boat though. This boat was not your typical boat as we've talked about. If you wanted to go to the bathroom, no going to a toilet. No, you went on a over the deck in this little box that came up to your knees. So hopefully you didn't hit a wave and fall out of the box and go overboard. And anything you, and there was just a hole on it. So you're just supposed to squat down and go to the bathroom in this tiny little hole. And then all your bathroom contents just went right out to the ocean. So it was, Crazy. It was, it was an experience that I won't forget. And then also on top of the boat. So to sleep, you had the, the one area with the big steering wheel and other gadgets for navigation. And then for the beds, you had to go on top of that. You had to climb up a ladder and on top, they just had a few blankets that you would use and that's where you would sleep. So if it would have rained, there would have been no place to sleep at night. Luckily it didn't rain the two days I was there on the boat. But anyway, as I said, it was two, 1 to 2 a.m. when I finally arrived and my guide had come and got me and, and the guy that organized my entire visa and we took he had taken a small canoe and we took the small canoe to Socotra and we had finally arrived. Okay, so let's talk about I arrived in Socotra my guide and visa organizer picked me up at 2 a.m. And it was kind of funny because then he was so excited. I think he was so excited to have a tourist. You got to remember, they had no tourists in over two years on this island. So they were so excited to have a tourist that he goes knocking on all these doors at 2 a.m. to try to have these shopkeepers that have snacks 
open up so I could get a snack, which at the time I just really wanted to sleep, but I was just so happy to be in Socotra I could care less. So that's kind of how it started. Now the next morning was a big crazy situation. So basically the government didn't really know that an American had been coming. So when I arrived and I went to the their government the next morning to get my visa on arrival, they basically said, no, you can't get a visa. You need to go back because the laws had changed for Americans because, um, I don't know, politics, um, America had probably done something that upset them. And so the Yemenese government didn't allow Americans even to Socotra anymore with a visa on arrival. But my guide basically then pleaded, they were doing this in all in Arabic, and trust me, they are not very diplomatic how they do it. Everybody's yelling, everybody's yelling Arabic at each other, and I'm just sitting there, no idea what's going on. But eventually, after about an hour and a half of arguments, they come and the government guy tells me, okay, here's the deal, because he could speak some English. He's like, you just need to take the next boat to leave. Which might sound bad, but you got to remember, I'm on an isolated island. I knew I'd have a few days. And what it was actually the next boat left sooner than we were anticipating. I had I got four days there. But four solid days in Socotra was pretty good, considering that I wasn't even supposed to be there. And after this, they banned anyone from coming. They talked to Omen Immigration to not allow anyone to go to Yemen unless they already had a pre-approved visa. So, because of me, that entire rule got established. But let's talk about my trip. So, there's a lot of really fun things that we did. We, I, went, I remember when we went scuba diving, and the craziest thing is the scuba diver instructor, I guess you could call him, hadn't used his equipment in two years. He hadn't seen a foreigner in two years. So it was a little nerve-wracking that the equipment might not work or something. It was actually incredible. The Obviously, there's not a lot of tourists there. There's tons of different types of fish and, and things that was amazing to see with the, the scuba diving. I wanted to ride a camel in the, the middle of the desert. And so we had to drive outside the capital city to where the desert was. And first of all, the camel guy's home was really unique. So it they're all one story and it's like kind of an open area with like three different rooms. So unlike a house with an open living room, they're just open, open, right? Like there's no, the middle area is just uh, sand and that's like the, the yard. And then their main home where like they have dinner and stuff, it's just basically two stone walls with sand in the middle that they put a carpet on, on the ground when they have guests over. So they just lay out the big carpet, you sit on it, and that's where we ate. And the food was, we had camel, and we had oranges, and we had rice, and it was kind of, you know, everybody kind of touch it, no no utensils at all, and everybody kind of touches it, and and it was, it was a neat experience. And what else was I gonna say? So we had a, so the camel guy says, oh, well, I let my camels roam freely on this island. <laughs> so I don't know if these camels were actually his. And he said, if you want to ride a camel, you're going to have to catch a camel. So that's exactly what we did. Eight of us, because again, they didn't have many tours. So me hanging out, everybody, and, and again, because of the crisis and stuff, there's just not a lot to do. A lot, of the, a lot of people didn't have jobs and stuff. So everyone came out to hang out with me, and we all have to circle one of these camels and push it towards the two people with the ropes. I was one of the guys actually holding the rope. And 
How it works is camels can't jump, camels can't reverse. So as soon as they go and get pushed towards this one area and it hits the rope, they're stuck and caught. And that's how we caught our camel. Okay, and so let's continue this story. All right, so we caught the camel. And so now we had to ride the camel. And if you don't know how camels work, because you're not from a place with a lot of camels, is basically you have to have them go on their knees so they get low enough to the ground so you can actually get on them and, and to ride. But this camel would not go on his knees. The, the camel guy, I guess you could call him, would grab one of his legs, but he'd use his other three legs to keep standing. And he just refused to go on his knees. And then he eventually, like, they tried to take out his front two legs. And then he would just go on his knees on his front, but stay standing with his back legs. So, like, he was just a very stubborn camel. So the only way he got me on the camel was tying his legs together, force him to go on his knees on his front, and then tying his back legs together and forcing him to go on his knees on the back. So he had to get tied up just so I could get on the camel. Then we untied the camel, which I, like, was very scared i held on really really tight because i was afraid he was going to go fly i'd go flying because the camel go off running and just stood up really quick and then he didn't do anything and he just ate the tree right next to the guide so he didn't really care and because there was a one small one small plant oh nearby where we had caught him so then then of course i took him to because we were very near the desert and i took him over where the nice sandy hills were and I was able to ride a camel through the desert like I saw in the movies and that made me happy. So I got that done. Now the thing that was really interesting with, with this guy was he told me about that he had seven daughters. And he told me how three, three really beautiful daughters, but his beautiful daughters had teeth just falling out. And at first I thought it was gum disease. I thought maybe they had cavities or whatever. The normal reasons most people did. So I didn't think much of it. But when we went to his home and we saw his daughters, I was absolutely, it was unbelievable. So like, for example, one of the daughters at the time, now granted this was about three years ago, one of his daughters was 18 years old and she only had two teeth left, which were, were her wisdom teeth. She had lost every other tooth in her malt, which at 18 years old is, is unremarkable. That you, never happens. And then he had a 10 year old who had lost all her baby teeth, which normally not all your, you, by 10, some of your baby teeth, but not all your baby teeth should be missing. And her front two incisors, which come out when you're about eight, they were already loose. And you could tell they weren't going to be in her mouth a year from now. And those teeth were only two years old. They, you know, her adult teeth had just erupted two years ago. And he had a six-year-old who also was having a lot of problems. Again, the six-year-old, that six years old, had lost all her baby teeth and her only teeth she had in her mouth was her adult teeth. Her six-year-old molars obviously had came in and her front teeth had came in, but like, it was just unfortunate. And they had scaly uh, skin on there, especially on their hands and feet. It was, it was unreal. Well, anyway, I had thought like, maybe this was a rare disease. Maybe I discovered something that, that was new because we were so isolated. And, and everything, and I went through all the different pathology I would learned in school, and I, I couldn't remember it at all. So I emailed, but amazingly enough, they had email service here. Well, not at this village where the, the camel guy was, but back in the capital city. And I emailed my professor, my oral pathology professor from dental school several years ago. And of course, he got back to me right away and told me it was Papillon-Lafer syndrome. And 
It's a very rare disease. He told me that we never covered it in class because it's so rare he never expected any of us to ever come across it. And we ended up writing a paper on the disease because to find three people in the same family to have it is so... To just see the disease one time is extremely rare. And to find three people with it is is unheard of. So we I, I ended up writing a paper on it with him. But that's besides the point. The other thing that's really unfortunate is there's no cure to it because it's genetic. And it's, a, it's very, like I said, very rare to get. And it happens in very isolated communities, which makes perfect sense. You would find this in Socotra. Socotra is an island that very few people leave and come back, right? It's a, an isol- island where you're born, raised, and die on this island. And then to add to it, this camel guy was in the desert, so he wasn't even in the capital city. He was an isolated tribe far, far removed from where the capital was. So it's just not a lot of people there, not a lot of diversity and genes being mixed around. So that's helped cause his daughters to have this. So anyway, the problem is there's no great cure for it. And really the only thing you can do is dentures. Now implants have been tried and sometimes have been successful. But don't forget, we are super isolated. So to do dental implants here is almost probably would never happen. But of course, I did work with the local doctor to make sure that they got dentures. And I just wish there was a better solution because many of the men are afraid to date those daughters, especially the 18-year-old. Obviously, the younger ones isn't such an issue. But the 18-year-old's now 21. And none of the men want to date her because they're afraid she'll give those genes to their children so it's just i don't know it's kind of kind of sad but that's uh the situation okay so let me take a quick break and kind of explain the formats and this since this is our first video that i'm recording so as i mentioned i'm doing this because i don't believe all my relatives have podcasts or ever listened to a podcast so i'm also recording this so they can see me on facebook and get it that way or youtube easier ways for my relatives to hear about my travel experiences and obviously anybody else that wants to hear it. But I was told by my friends that when I talk and read from a script about my stuff that happened to me, I feel very robotic. I'm not able to put any emotions and excitement and everything like that. So that's why right now I have no script. As you can tell, I've been doing it all from memory. But when I get to the end, like where I am right now, I will look over my notes and see if there's anything I missed. So that's what I'm going to do right now. So on this scene, I will be looking away from the camera sometimes. But I'm not good at looking at the camera in the first place anyway. So let's go. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to mention is the coolest thing with going to Socotra was it was like I was going back in time. Again, because it's so isolated, because... Really, it's only communication. Main communication is small, little, tiny Indian boats. It's like seeing what the Gulf used to be like back 40, 50 years ago before they discovered oil and got rich and made fancy buildings. It was like what the Arabic world was like 50 years ago, which is incredible. It's a beautiful place and it was incredible back then and it's still incredible. So I really, really love that. The dragon blood tree. So again, I'm not into plants at all and I... I just, I'm not a guy that, I've never taken pictures of trees or flowers or things like that. That's not what excites me when I travel. But even for you people that don't like flowers, go to Socotra, you're going to be amazed. Because like I said in the introduction, it's like a Dr. Seuss book. It's unfreaking believable So these dragon blood trees are literally, imagine an, a tree that looks like an umbrella. That's what it looks like. And it's only in Yemen. And okay, so I'm going to be talking about a lot of stuff here. And just quick side note, 
And so I think the best way I'll do is if, if you at least have Facebook or you have Instagram, I'll probably, Instagram's a good limit. So each episode, I will talk about a place. I will be posting 10 photos on that place because Instagram only allows 10. And so you can see the 10 photos from the talk and I'm gonna try to pick specific things we talked about in this presentation so you can see it. And so you can check it out if you want to. And then of the 10 photos, one will be a map so you can at least see where it is. And then the other nine photos will be something significant about the place, especially if it was mentioned in the talk. So you can visual, you, you know, you can actually visualize, you don't just have to imagine, but you can actually visually see what it looked like. So this will be one of them, obviously will be these trees. So the dragon blood trees, what happens is when the bark comes off, it's red. And so when Westerners discovered it, they thought, you know, they call it dragon blood tree because they thought the redness looked like blood. And so like a blood of a dragon. So those were unbelievable, but, and that's what everybody knows, but just going to see them on the way, we plot past these other, I don't know, bushes and plants that were straight out of a Dr. Seuss book, which I just, I could not believe it. So I have photos with them too. And it was just incredible plant life. It, that's why Socotra is called the most alien looking place on earth. And that's why I recommend everybody to go there. Besides that, what else would I like to tell you? Oh, when I did leave, it, I took another Indian boat that was a different boat that was leaving. And a lot more people were out there because we were leaving during the middle of the day. So tons of people came. And so it was a much bigger commotion when we left. When I arrived, it was only 1 or 2 a.m. But as much as I'd like to say everybody came because of me, they also had four local people from the island leaving. So they probably, most of them were there for them. But I like to take some of the credit saying that they were excited to have their first tourist in two years leave. And, but the other thing that was really neat is I, the boat guy, the, at least this time when we left, the guy could speak a little bit of English, the captain. So it was really nice and like, like when he'd have dinner, he'd always invite me to have dinner with him. And he was just such a nice, nice, he was an Indian guy in an Indian boat and just such a nice guy. And it was just, I think they, they don't get many <laughs> crazy people jumping on Indian boats that really talk and interact with them. So it was, it was just really nice to, to make, I, I don't know, I felt like we made friends, even though obviously I was using the boat to, to, for transport. It was, I think we all had a good time. One of the sad things is that they have the cot plant. So it's, it, just think of it as any other drug. It's like smoking. It's like smoking would, smoking is the best example. Where people know it costs money, people know it's harmful, but people still do it. That's the cot plant. Now it's not as harmful, but unlike smoking, cot costs a lot of money and people, it just destroys the economy of Somalia and Yemen. And so this is because this island is between the two places, it destroys this island too. So the reason I'm saying that is when I gave my guide money, I paid him for the visa, I paid him for all his work because, you know, he put in a lot of effort to get me there. First thing he spent his money on was caught, right? And every day he went and did like as soon as they get money, they go and buy it. And so it's just unfortunate because you could use that money for so many useful things for investing in a business or doing other things, projects. I mean, the country needs money and the little bit of money that they actually make everybody just uses for this plant. And so they're never going to advance, which is, I guess, one of the nice things that they don't advance is you still get to see what the world was like many years ago, but still you just feel bad because this country could use, and this island could use some infrastructure. Another thing was about the, the women. The women all were burqas. And so that was because, again, the Muslim religion, which is pretty strict there. My guide was dating a Russian. So he, his wife, didn't wear the burqa she hated it she hated wearing a hijab 
And she would complain anytime she went out in public because she would have to put the hijab on. But they allowed her, maybe because she's a foreigner, or maybe all women are allowed to, are only required only the hijab and not the full burqa. But she was the only person I saw that only wore a hijab if they were women and were over the age of, say, like 15. And so, oh, and gas for the car is done with a funnel. So no normal gas stations. You literally put a funnel to your gas tank and then have to drop in gasoline that way. Oh, and their dress was very, like, like I said, it was like going back in time because their dress was just like it used to be back in the good old days in, in the Gulf and the Arabic world. The, the guys kind of wore like skirts, which is kind of, I mean, that's what they used to wear tied with a rope and just like a t-shirt on top. So that was absolutely fascinating. So this has been my first episode, first full episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave comments and suggestions. Please let me know if there's things that I should do differently. I'm not an expert at any, you know, I'm a tooth fixer. I am not a podcaster or YouTuber, so I may not be an expert at how to do this. So please let me know what I should do differently. And Number two, let's talk about next time. Next time we're going to be talking about the Falkland Islands, which had a war in the 80s, which a lot of people there who are adults were there when the war happened. So it was, it's a really unique place. It's the best place in the world to see penguins. And we will be talking about that next time. So see you next time. Follow Unmapped Travel Destinations on Instagram and Facebook to see photos from this week's destination and follow the wandering dentist himself at wandering underscore dentist on Instagram or wandering dentist on Facebook. I always follow. I always follow. If you have questions or ideas for future shows, please reach out on social media. Please let your family and friends know as word of mouth is the best way to let others save money. Lastly, a five-star review is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, save Safe travels.